What I believe is different about PDA is that it is a perception of threat that is specifically tied to the loss of autonomy or equality. And it sets off a nervous system response that is is tied to like a survival situation of like, I'm going to die, right? And it sets off the physiological response of the nervous system, a fight, flight, or freeze. And what's unique about it is that that survival instinct and perception related to autonomy and equality consistently overrides other survival instincts like hunger, safety, toileting, hygiene. And that's where I define. Welcome to the Sensory Wise Solutions podcast for parents, where parents can get real, actionable strategies to support kids with sensory processing disorder. I'm Laura, OT and mom to Liliana, a sensory sensitive kid who inherited my anxiety and my love for all things Disney. Consider me your new OT mom bestie. I know my stuff, but I also know what it's really like in the trenches of parenting a child with sensory processing disorder. Okay, mom, enough about me. Let's start the podcast. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have guest Casey Ehrlich, who is otherwise known as At Peace Parents on Instagram. And we are uncovering as much as we can today about PDA, which stands for Pathological Demand Avoidance, which is a particular profile of autism. And this has been something that keeps coming up and I am still actively learning so much about this. As you will hear in the episode, I have so many questions for Casey. This is one of the least understood profiles and neurotypes for me personally uh, and professionally because I didn't start learning about it until really I was not really in the clinic as much. So I don't have a lot of day-to-day examples or practical hands-on experience with children who have PDA. Um, And so Casey is a social scientist, a parent educator, and the founder of At Peace Parents, LLC. She brings 15 years of work experience and expertise in social science methodology to help parents and therapists understand how to connect with and accommodate PDA autistic children. She specializes in teaching parents and therapists practical skills in the home or clinical setting to accommodate neuroception-driven demand avoidance and nervous system differences through creative techniques. She has served more than 1,000 families raising PDA autistic children and teens since 2020 and is also raising a PDA autistic son. The first half of this episode is really listening to the story of Casey and how she came to find out that um, her son had uh, the PDA type of autism. But she definitely goes into it with some very actionable strategies on how to accommodate your kids because accommodation is a huge part that I'm learning for PDA kids. And I even ask her a lot of the devil's advocate questions that you might think of when you hear some of the tips. So this is really, really a good one to listen. It's a little bit long. It's a little over an hour. Also, the volume was a little bit different between her and my mic. So I tried to adjust it as possible, but sorry if you have to keep turning up the volume and turning it down. Thanks for being patient with that. All right, let's get into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I am sitting here today with Casey Ehrlich. I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us, Casey. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. This topic of PDA has been something that has been coming up more and more and more. It's one of those things where I, after the first time I heard it, which was pretty recent in 2021, I had said, I've never heard that before. And then after that, it kept, I kept noticing it. It's one of those things where I was like, has it been around, but I just haven't noticed it. But more and more people have been asking me about it. And this has been the one thing in my career as an OT and as a parent coach where I have been like, huh, I, I definitely see that. And I 
can identify in the past, the clients that I've worked with, I was like, they were probably that profile. And I have no idea how you go about supporting that because it seems so counterintuitive to a Mm -hmm. lot of the things that we know as parents and even as therapists and educators. So I'm so excited to find a trusted resources. I share parents, I share your Instagram with parents all the time. And I'm so excited to have you here to ask you all the questions about PDA. So uh, before we get started, I would love if you would just introduce yourself to the audience and how you have a connection to PDA, whether it's professional or personal and let us know your story. Sure. So um, I'm Casey. It's nice to meet you, (laughs) everyone. Um, I am the founder of At Peace Parents, which is um, coaching and education specifically for parents raising PDA children or teens between approximately the ages of three and 17. So um, we have coaching and education and Yeah, it is what I do now. I'm a business owner now, as well as providing direct service to parents, which I love. Um, And it's very, very different than what I imagined my life would look like, um, because actually my background is in um, international affairs, political science, economic development. Um, I spent my 20s. I've lived in seven different countries and spent my 20s doing international work, mostly in South America. Um, and I, ha- I have a master's degree in international affairs where I met my husband in New York. And then I did a doctorate, doctorate degree in political science and social science methodology. And I did my field research and dissertation on um, grassroots peace building in Colombia, South America. So very different. Um, although I do bring threads through of intergenerational trauma, reconciliation, um, I, I now see some of the threads with like nonviolence and trauma, but at the time that I shifted, I was like losing, I lost my identity as a professional essentially. Um, so I was working for a large research nonprofit that does policy work in Washington, DC. I was working on a team, helping to lead a team that um, did research integrity. So I managed a team of methodologists and scientists uh fact checkers data checkers to ensure that the policy work going to the hill in washington dc was accurate and unbiased um but behind the scenes um my life was kind of falling apart as a mother um i had a son who i didn't really know how to connect with um and i looked around myself in dc to friends and colleagues and wondered how everyone else sort of seemed to be parenting okay and not traumatized from it. (laughs) You know, my husband and I would joke like, everybody else just seems to be hanging out with their kids. And, you know, that sentence now makes sense to me because what I didn't realize was that I was raising a child with a nervous system disability who needed um, constant signals of safety in order to stay regulated and undivided attention Um, And that, you know, all the good practices of parenting were essentially making my son's nervous system activate and repeated repeatedly so towards the point where he reached nervous system burnout and I believe complex trauma and and the pattern I see with families is that often a child reaches or teen reaches that point. um, Due to a combination of things or one thing which is like strict parenting in a traditional behavioral sense uh, therapy intensive like aba therapy and or really strict or many public school experiences so you know my experience was unique in that it wasn't school that caused my son to go into nervous system burnout it was essentially me right and so you know i i have so much compassion for parents i i remember I remember like a form of a um, family reunion at my at my husband's parents house in Maryland and you know there were all these family members and it was a very loving situation we were outside with the pool. um, And my son just could not engage and he kept melting down and having what I now understand is panic attacks and this was before um, 
you know, he reached severe nervous system burnout, but I drove home and I remember standing in my driveway just crying because I was so confused, right? Because he was social. He made eye contact a lot of the time. He was quite verbal. And, and you know, every time I went to the pediatrician had concerns about his eating, his behavior, it was always like, you need to be stricter. You need to be more consistent. Um, and I was just, I knew in my mama's heart, like something was not okay. Like, not that he wasn't okay, but like, he wasn't thriving. He seemed very unhappy and he was increasingly not speaking. He was increasingly not able to walk. Like we had to carry him places. He would say his legs don't work. And then he stopped eating and essentially got to the point where any interaction resulted in full on fight flight behavior. And from my perspective, it looked like a feral animal. And I remember telling, my husband, like, this is what a traumatized child looks like. Like, this is not behavior. Like, I finally knew in my heart of hearts, like, and we wondered if something happened at his daycare, if he had experienced something. And I know other parents who have, who have had that question, right? Um, so we even explored that. But I remember him cowering in corners and like I would try and soothe him and he would bite and hit and kick and scream and I couldn't soothe him, which had been a theme since he was an infant. Um, so you can imagine the impact on one's identity as a mother of like, you can't do the most basic human thing. Like I couldn't feed my child, I couldn't soothe him, etc. Um, so I'll pause there. I'm happy to go deeper into it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so I know there's people listening that are resonating with with either the whole story or little bits and pieces. I definitely had a huge connection moment with you when you were talking about seeing other families and they just get to hang out with their child, right? I always share a part of my story where there were moments when I I remember walking, seeing it was seeing family eating froyo like on a Sunday, like laughing and the froyo was like melting on the kid's face and the, the family was laughing and like and I was like that that would uh, not be a possibility for my family right now at that time right when we were living yeah. life between meltdowns was the way I described it. Oh, so, yeah. it, you know, my <laughs> daughter has a different kind of neurotype, but still equally the same kind of feelings of isolations. And I called it like, I felt like we were in quarantine before quarantine was a thing because we could not leave the 100%, house. 100%. We were just stuck. And that envy of just seeing flashes of families just giggling or just coexisting happily mm -hmm. was like, what is that like i would love that and that that is such a hard feeling so i just wanted to tell you i connected with that and i know there's a lot of listeners that to connect to that part of your story so something made you understand or see this is a trauma-based sort this is what's happening from a uh, there was like a trauma part of his story that you you made it to separate from his behaviors and saying this is not a behavioral yeah. thing right so actually an ot um was very formative in my not with pda but understanding a different lens so i had a dear friend from college who was like come stay with me in chicago fly with me if you feel like you can uh, fly with your son if, if you feel like you can you'll stay with me she had a son the same age and she set up an assessment with a trusted slp and ot and like i had never even heard the word co-regulation before uh -huh. <laughs> like this uh -huh. was not my area of expertise can you get tell me what age your son was so we can have the timeline of it what's yeah. what, how, what was his age at this time so it was like four and three fourths okay <laughs> almost okay. Five. so okay so not yet in kindergarten unless no, he was in an no early. but okay. he had been in full-time daycare and what was so confusing okay. is that he was very high masking until he wasn't right. Mm -hmm. So like he was totally quote fine at daycare. And actually because his social engagement was a special interest, it still is. He was regulated in the like fairly chaotic environment of a bunch of other Interesting. kids. Wow. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and he would mask with my mother-in-law and like eat more, sleep more, not touch anything. Mm -hmm. And the second we would walk in, the um her apartment building like 
his face would change and he would start like being like melting down being a whirling dervish hurting himself like it was just like this immediate shift so you know things had been building um there was one weekend which was father's day this is before the pandemic where um I had started to need to like scoop up my newborn, my younger son, um, when we, when the panic attack started, but at the time it looked like rages. Um, and I would pick up my newborn and like run out into the street because he would be like in the line of fire or like, it was just not safe. And so my husband stayed behind to try and deescalate. And he, my son threw, um, threw a toy at my husband's face and so he took the toy and was like I'm going to put this in the basement you can't do that right natural response and yeah. when he was in the basement my son locked um locked him in the basement and started screaming and like I didn't have my phone with me so I was in the street again weeping and a neighbor came by and was like are you okay and I was like no like I'm not okay um and it was that father's day weekend that my husband and I were like this, like something is happening. And I was like, okay, I need to quit my job um, at the research institution. And we couldn't afford to live in DC area without two full-time jobs. Um, So we decided to look for, he decided to look for work in Michigan where I'm from, where my family is. And that's how we ended up in a small town in Michigan and me as a full-time caregiver <laughs> wow. for a while. Yeah. Wow. And so, so then back to your story, cause I pulled you away at his age part. So then you went to visit your friend in Chicago. Oh, I'm sorry. Who yeah. was, and at that time he was not five yet. No, he wasn't so, five yet. And at so, that point there was no, sorry, there was no, um, he had no formal evaluation from no. any sort of uh, developmental therapist or expert at that time. No, just like every okay. time I went to the pediatrician, they would be like, well, you're working too much and you're not getting home cooked meals on the table. And that's why he's not eating or like you need to go to this parenting class. Like my husband and I were so gaslit. <laughs> and this is oh why I feel gosh. so passionate about like supporting yes. parents, because like we really did go through the <sighs> ringer like most of my clients and families I work with. Um, And I just, you know, I feel very strongly about putting a logical framework and science and evidence to scaffold a lot of things that parents already intuit, right? Mm -hmm. But they doubt themselves because Mm -hmm. professionals tell them they're doing it wrong. So anyways, when I was in Chicago, my friend who is um, DIR floor time trained and works with learning disabilities and autistic children. And she's just amazing. Um, She, you know, we had, I learned about the sensory lens for the first time. Um, I saw what OT was, I learned what co-regulation was and, and I watched her parent her son. And it was like the first time I had seen someone parent without consequences and punishments she was my starting point she was my starting point and then you know i didn't i worked through the sensory processing lens for about a year um, without knowing about pda and then my son's ot actually was like you know i think this might be what's going on with cooper they said the ot is who who mentioned pda to you or she was talking about the sensory piece no 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 the pda piece oh okay great oh wow okay in michigan um And it was during the pandemic, I was a full-time caregiver and I was like, I can't deal with another acronym. Mm -hmm. I'm not even feeling. So it took me like four months to even fully explore it. Um, And then it was like a veil lifted. Like I understood everything. What were the first resources that you went to? And that first, you said it took you about four months to finally to to understand it more what were some of those first resources that you went to that ended up clicking for you and really giving you that that veil lifting that you talked about yeah so the first thing i read was pathological demand avoidance understanding pathological demand avoidance which is a book Um, and i think it said pathological demand avoidance syndrome in children and teens and it was 
very informative and totally despairing <laughs> and devastating because the outcomes that they spoke about were very negative for the families they did like case studies with. Um, and it didn't really present the full picture of what was actually going on in the brain. Um, so the next resource I heard was on the Tilt Parenting podcast, and I'm going to name it because this is the honest citation in my brain, was Harry Thompson. And he's now been deemed problematic, and he is problematic. Um, but I read his book, um, and I was like, this is this is it. Like, this is how my son's brain works. And, um, and then I, I understood the the root cause and how it related to the nervous system, which once I understood the root cause, everything started to make sense, right? Um, and then other resources I learned from, you know, I, I found another mom in my area and it grew to be like a group of moms that was connected during the pandemic and also seeing the patterns and themes that we all dealt with and it gave us confidence to know it wasn't just our parenting. Um, and she and I started a podcast, PDA Parents, which and a website which preceded my business and is still out there if anyone's interested. Oh, good. Cool. Um, yeah. So the PDA Parents podcast is me and another mom talking about our experiences. Um, and we just got an influx of people like, oh my God, this is my family too. And I had no idea there were so many families out there. Um and I started doing social media for PDA parents and I used my like ethnographic skills. I was following like hundreds of autistic ADHD PDA advocates to try and understand all the causal mechanisms and themes in my son's brain and behavior. Um, so I also learned a lot from Christy Forbes, who's a great resource. I learned a lot from neuroclastic. I learned a lot from Neurodivergent Lou, um, you know, all sorts of resources. Sally Cat, who writes on the internalized expression of PDA, is really informative. So, you know, before I started my business, I wasn't necessarily even thinking of starting a business. I was just trying to use my brain in a way that wasn't de escalating meltdowns. Because, um, mm. you know, I. I had a career and my brain wanted to think about things. So what I learned from the, about the root cause was from PDA or autistic adult advocates. Like this is what's causing a nervous system mm. reaction in my brain and body. But then I dove deep into the trauma literature, polyvagal theory and child development, like Dr. Dan Siegel, Tina mm -hmm. Payne Bryson to understand mm -hmm. like, okay, if this is a nervous system response, what can we learn about how to actually support this through a body of literature that actually exists, mm, right? I love and that. Then, and then I started, you know, working and coaching with families so I could start to see patterns and variability, which sometimes can be hard to see if we don't have a large end sample, mm -hmm. right? So now I've worked with hundreds of families and you know, thousands have come through my world. And so I use that academic perspective to see the distribution. And then the methodologies that I teach are based on my own parenting, applying the logic that I've learned um, mm -hmm. and seeing support other families. And so you're, you were almost doing your own meta-analysis and pulling from lots of different bodies of literature that would fit this picture because none at that time had really existed and what is the research to date in terms of supporting a pda child or teen or adult um specifically with that profile what does that look like is there any out there and if anyone wanted to find out more what's the best resource for that yeah so i think um pda society is the best resource for um journal articles on PDA. It's it's not so much about parenting PDA. They do have a lot of great resources, but the research is um, a lot about observed behaviors and whether or not PDA exists, right? Which is a little bit different than mm -hmm. like, how do we 
I mean, they have really great handouts, but my perspective on PDA is slightly different than the PDA society, which is not to say one's better or worse. It's just okay. I, I see PDA as a nervous system disability related to a survival drive for autonomy. Whereas okay. the PDA Society defines it based on Elizabeth Newson's definition, which is an anxiety-driven need for control. And, okay. you know, it, it may seem like we're parsing semantics, uh-huh. but um, in terms of understanding the autonomy and equality piece and the nervous system piece, like that's what I think has been transformative for my family mm-hmm. and what I've wanted to share with others because it has transformed Mm-hmm. my son and my experience with him and his well-being. So would you say it's fair to classify it or talk about it as PDA kids have a dysregulated nervous system that's perceiving a threat mm-hmm. and they need, they have that drive for autonomy and the need for, to, for control in order to have a felt sense of safety in their nervous system. Is that? Almost. Almost? Add to <laughs> so, it, yes. please. Oh, okay, yes. So the way I would think about it, because it, the counterpoint that anyone's going to make if you say that is like, well, don't all kids need autonomy? Don't all kids need sure. felt safety? Right. And don't all kids need to learn co-regulation? Sure. However, What I believe is different about PDA is that it is a perception of threat that is specifically tied to the loss of autonomy or equality, and it sets off a nervous system response that is is tied to like a survival situation of like, I'm going to die, right? And it sets off the physiological response of the nervous system, Mm -hmm. a fight, flight, or freeze. And what's unique about it is that that survival instinct and perception related to autonomy and equality consistently overrides other survival instincts like Mm. hunger, safety, toileting, hygiene. And that's where I define it because in the moment or in accumulation like over time it's actually the nervous system disabling a child from eating or toileting and we see yeah and so we see in nervous system burnout things that we're treating as a medical issue or a behavioral issue that's actually related to a nervous system accumulation of nervous system stress to the point where they can't access toileting right Mm -hmm. and where the physiological response of fight flight is causing a loss of hunger right like Mm -hmm. it's not just sensory it's actually like the metabolism is speeding up Mm -hmm. and they're vomiting like my son Mm -hmm. used to vomit still does when he gets too excited (laughs) like when he goes skiing or to a puppy class you know he he will vomit on the way home because he perceives threat in the internal loss of autonomy from that much excitement so like his interoception can set off yeah. a loss of autonomy yeah so wow so this is what i think is the crux of the definition and i love it because it's like a it's very it's explanatory yes and it's um it's an elegant theory as the dorky academics say because it does explain everything like why can't these kids play alone independently It's not because they don't have the skills, it's because they don't have the nervous system scaffolding because they're perceiving threat all the time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it's like there's all the paradoxes can be explained by this primary root cause, which I'm very passionate about. (laughs) I love the way you describe that. And that definitely gave me a whole new lens to think of it as. So I'm glad that you provided me a safe space to ask that question and for educating me. So thank you for that. I love questions. (laughs) So let's bring it uh to a more applicable approach yeah. that parents listen to that are that are here listening what how how do we parent a pda child i know that's a that's a loaded question and that's why there's a whole podcast on it and resources so definitely everyone check that out we'll put as many links as we can gather into the show notes but you had a post recently that i think summed it up very nicely and i would love to just go through those five tips you had a post on the top five ways to accommodate a pda child and if i could i'd like to just um, name them out and then have you elaborate on them and give us more background behind it yeah um 
Okay, and so I'll also put the link to this post in the show notes if anyone wants to see it and then share it out. But um, so this, these are five ways to accommodate a PDA child. And the first one that you said was let the PDA child win the game every time. What does that mm -hmm. one mean? And give us more information on that. Sure. So these are five of the, I think the easiest accommodations out of 12 that I teach. And before I teach accommodations, I always support parents to learn how to make cost benefit decisions within constraints, because um, if we're not radically accepting our constraints with this nervous system disability, we're applying accommodations to fix it. So I just need to say that I'm going to get practical. Okay. Okay. So, so if we go back to the root cause, which is like every time the child perceives a loss of equality, which happens anytime they're losing a game or they miss a play or they're not winning in um, a board game, et cetera, then we know, okay, their nervous system is going into fight or flight and they're not in the thinking brain, right? So our, our intuition or our learning as parents, OTs, therapists is going to be like, well, we need to teach them how to lose, right? Whereas the logic is a little different here of like, when we accommodate, allow them to change the rules, which is an equalizing behavior to get back to nervous system safety. When we allow them to win in a one-on-one -on -one setting, we're actually strengthening the pathway back to the thinking brain and maintaining trust and connection based on that experience of felt safety and trust over and over and over again, they're spending more time in their thinking brain and they have the experience of felt safety. They can learn and then paradoxically, and I've seen this with my son and with other families, they actually do better outside of that one-on-one -on -one setting because they are more in their thinking brain overall and they can actually abide by the norms of a game, right? This is a long-term process. It's not an in-the-moment skill-based. Right. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And I I want to highlight the part where you said you specified in a one-on-one -on -one setting. Yes. So if there like were a siblings, setting. right. Yeah. So if, so two follow-up questions. If there were siblings or if this were you know, a social group or a teacher with four kids doing a math or something like that, how so you would not apply this strategy at that time. You kind of have to separate. This is going to be a learn. Uh, this is going to be a an accommodation game where I'm playing one on one with my daughter as a therapeutic style versus. Yeah, you're playing with your playdate friends and you guys are playing uh, Candyland. I'm not going to intervene and we're going to deal with how whatever happens if you lose the game i'm not going to tell your friends to let you to win that kind of thing right i think yes correct and what and what happens before we get to the accommodation as a parent is i might have decided before the play date came we're not going to be playing any competitive games <laughs> right <laughs> which is the decision making right and right. so this is why it's hard to you know, everything is oversimplified on Instagram. Of course, I know exactly. Um, yes. Yeah, you know. So the way I think of it is like when we're working with a PDA child, as a parent especially, we're not just parenting, we're caregiving, right? We're accommodating a nervous system disability. And so, you know, I've spent years letting my son equalize and win and change the rules. And over the course of four years, with all the other accommodations, he now spends more time in his thinking brain and his window of tolerance is larger, mm. right? Like from the trauma literature. So he's not going to tip over into like violence because he's losing a game. He may have the activation, but he has a window, but it's yeah. like a long-term approach. So it's something to experiment with, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, maybe in an o like in an ot setting with his ot like one of the things we do that is really fun is like i ham it up i bring in humor and i'm like oh my gosh you are so good good at this game like i can't believe it and he'll like you know he'll have like a thousand more points than me but in doing that game he's actually working on skills for his like motor planning 
Right. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So like, and that that's that's a really good point because I talk about that with parents a lot where we're about to do this activity and it's working on multiple skills. What is our goal? Is this a fine motor? Are we doing visual perception? Are we doing executive functioning? Whatever we're trying to target, like the main goal, we're going to accommodate everything else so that even if it's like a posture thing, like we're going to have them sit in a comfortable chair so they don't have to think about sitting upright or I'm not going to care if they're standing and walking away from the table every five minutes, if that's regulating them to play the game, which is the goal of this session. So having to think of what's the goal. And if yours is to build connection with your child or to help them, you know, executive functioning skills in a game, even turn taking, but you could still let them win, but you're taking turns and still practicing it. There's so many different skills that way. Um, my, my second follow-up question to that is at any point when you're not playing those games, do you, uh, like cognitive, like explain to your child, you know, when you're not playing with mom or do you kind of have to separate? You don't, you don't even call that out. You just kind of. So here's what we've noticed, like with the data in our own home. And I think a lot of families I've worked with have as well. And this takes a degree of trust and experimentation, right? Um, now I know his threshold, right? So when I play, I might not always let him win. It's now four years into a trusting relationship, but I'm monitoring his threshold of tolerance, like a mother of a diabetic child would monitor a child with insulin, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm always monitoring that. Mm -hmm. um, I also strongly believe that many of these kids and teens already have two things, an understanding of what they should be doing cognitively and the skills to do it, but they can't access it because they're not in the right part of their brain. Mm -hmm. So I don't actually need to go back and tell him. I What I believe my role is, is to support him in learning compassionately how to manage his disability. And, and in doing so, I'm getting him back to his thinking brain so he can actually do that, so he can learn how to manage. And this is where it is really important to understand the different the various neurotypes because my daughter who doesn't have a pda profile who has an anxious neurotype and she's sensory sensitive and very sensitive to interoception i actually i don't teach her how to lose or teach her how to be disappointed i'm helping her. i have to have these instances where i she has to experience discomfort in a safe way so that i can help her learn how to regulate those big feelings and if yeah. i if I avoid all those big feelings for her, she's never going to practice it, but she's not a PDA brain profile kid, right? So that's where it's yeah. so important, I think, and why this Agreed. particular profile feels so different than the one. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, so, okay. So the second, unless you had anything else to add to that, I'll go on to the second one. Yeah, I just wanted to add to your question of like, do you ever go, do you ever talk yes. to him about things afterwards? Yes. I do. I do, if it's like a bigger theme where I like, you know, like things that are going on between siblings or a way he behaved in a certain setting, you know, like where I feel like it's something we need to address as a family, but not little things like losing a game because I see him play games like he plays tackle football on a team and uh, loses yeah. every game with his yeah. team and yeah. you know he has nervous system activation his dad supports him through it as a voluntary coach um but he knows right like he knows how to play by the rules he just sometimes can't because of those perceptions of losses of autonomy and equality and it yeah activates him yeah um okay so the next uh, tip you listed was stop asking questions and start using declarative language instead. And I saw you use that term again, declarative language in a reel with some examples. So I would love if you could elaborate on that and tell us what that might sound like. Sure. So I'm going to separate this into two accommodations to experiment with, because the first thing I usually tell parents is to experiment with not saying anything at all. Um, mm. So like in for example, when? Like, like when what, I come, yeah. like for example, when I come down for, um, you know, get my coffee, I wake up my sons, right? Before my meditation. And I wake up my younger son who's not PDA and I like snuggle him. I put my face into his like t 
tummy. I like look at him sucking his thumb. I like, I'm like, you're the sweetest. You know, I say all the things. I snuggle him. I do the things like, like a puppy. And then with my PDA son, I sit on the floor and I put myself next to him and I like gently touch him once. And then I say nothing to him until he initiates, which might not be until I see him in the evening, right? Because the initiation of conversation can activate the nervous system reaction because of the loss of autonomy and the perception that I'm above him as an authority getting to decide when he speaks. Hmm. So wow. this has actually facilitated him sharing with me because he's in his thinking brain. So for example, like if I pick him up for school for OT, I don't say anything until he talks to me, um, which is deeply counterintuitive mm -hmm. um, for someone like me who, you know, grew up thinking, talking and joint attention is connection, right? And care. So that's the first thing. That one in the programs that I, I run is like very low hanging fruit. It's hard for parents, but they like have so many wins with it. Like they're it's, like, I didn't say anything and I got to hear all about like their friends today. Like, I heard yes. a tip from, I recently interviewed Myla from Joyful Parents, I think is her Instagram name. And she was talking about how she's like, I literally have to like bite my tongue or put pressure on my lips to truly not open my mouth and even say a word during some of her daughter's dysregulation. And I said, that's a really good tip because even though if I don't say anything, don't say anything, it's it's really hard but yeah that is yeah. it's a hard thing to do but it's a very tangible quick thing to try for a day like let me just give it a shot for today and see totally. how it changes yeah totally and then yeah. um so declarative language i learned about from linda k murphy's book the declarative language handbook which is brilliant it's written for kids with learning differences and disabilities um not specific to pda but i think it fits PDA parenting and therapy very well because instead of asking a direct question like, hey, what do you want to do today? Mm -hmm. Or saying like, we need to figure out what we're doing today, which is an imperative, you can use a declarative sentence, which is like, you know, I think that um, I think the donut shop opened, right? Like just a mm. statement that they can respond to or uh. not uh-huh so, would that count as like i wonder statements because yeah. i use that a lot like i wonder yeah. what happened earlier or like i wonder who's gonna be there later kind of just or, like a narrative yeah. i wonder yeah or if like for parents who are listening who have a pda kid this is a common one where it's like i'm bored i'm bored i'm bored mm. but you suggest something and they're like, like no and they're like no 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 yeah so i generally encourage parents to experiment with like you can like you okay. can watch a show or you can do this um, okay also like with things like putting on shoes like did you put your shoes on go put your shoes on that's a direct question that's an imperative so instead of that we okay. can say i notice you don't have your shoes on or what i would do would be use no words at all and just like get on the floor with the shoes and then i might say i can put your shoes on with you which is like mm -hmm. also lowering a demand mm -hmm. right so like yeah. i blend all the accommodations yeah yeah i i'm like I, I i use those a lot with my daughter so it might be it also is uh i mean i think it i think it's a good way to separate the telling them what to do versus just like Oh, I noticed this room. It's hard for me to walk across this room. Like if the room is messy, right? I noticed there's a lot of toys on the floor today. Yeah. <laughs> like that kind of thing, right? I notice it. It almost seems like a passive, right? Like I'm thinking there's other people in my life who would like, just tell me what you want. Like, what do you mean? Like, why are you being passive aggressive? Just say what you want, right? Yeah. But that's how well, knowing everyone has a different language and different learning styles, different communication. It is a communication style. Would totally. you agree that that's a, a part of it, right? Yeah. So can I tell you a funny anecdote that just yes. happened? Like, yes. Today, usually my husband helps me with the tech because I'm not great at like <laughs> setting up the microphone. And and I'm just so used to using declarative language. Yeah. I was like, I have a podcast interview at one. He's like, great, <laughs> honey. Like, I'll make you lunch. 
And then I'm like, okay, I have to be on the call at 1250. <laughs> and he's like, okay. And then at like 1246, I was like, babe, like, are you going to come help me with the microphone? He was like, yeah. oh, I didn't realize you uh, needed help. And I, I like, that That's it. I, okay. I didn't want to name call, but I was saying my husband would, is the person for sure. He'd be like, okay, so what is it that you need me to do? Like, I'm hearing you yeah, say yeah, these yeah. statements, right? Like, and a lot of it is me. I'll be in, oh, this kitchen is a mess. There's so many dishes. And he's like, do you need help? And I'm like, no, I'm just complaining. Yeah. <laughs> or sometimes it's, I would like help, but it's so interesting. So that, I mean, this is, I could ask so many questions before. I don't want to go too off tangent, but this just makes me think when your brain gets so much in that, um, you know, thankfully it was a funny anecdote between you and your, your husband, but how hard is it to switch on and off when you have multiple kids? with different mm -hmm. kinds of communication styles, because I will say, aside from PDA, um, when I talk to families who have kids who are neurodivergent and neurotypical, and they're like, well, how do I handle this kid's tantrum versus that kid's meltdown? And I say, generally, I would rather treat, I would rather, I think it's safer to parent both kids under the same neurodivergent parenting style when we're thinking of and not everything is just a behavior look beneath it co-regulate like it's safe to just apply it to both rather than treat the neurodivergent kid as a neurotypical right yeah but it feels like you have to have such different communication styles when you have multiple kids is it really hard for you to switch back and forth or does your younger one learn this new style as well well i've Okay, so like here's where I would separate it. I think I use a ton of the accommodations with my younger son um, just because it's like how I parent at this point. But besides accommodations, I have a very different decision making process with my younger son, for example. Like I do hold stricter boundaries for him around what he can eat right like my younger my older son has trauma around food we've spent four years trying to get him past just eating popcorn and pirate's booty i mean literally like beyond picky you know you're an ot mm -hmm. like yeah. this is actually like a medical issue <laughs> yes um, yes and so you know of course my younger four and a half year old wants to eat popcorn and ice cream for breakfast which I will allow my PDA son because it's food. Um, and in my head, it's like what facilitates eating is felt safety for him and autonomy. And his eating has improved just very slowly. But for my younger son, I don't have that same cost benefit, which is about decision making rather than my um, than my parenting style. Mm -hmm. That, that must be that really sense? it makes sense but that i could see that being hard for some parents to even grasp and then also manage the behaviors between the siblings of well that's not fair and i want this but i completely see the difference between it i just imagine that coming up and being hard to navigate if the if one doesn't understand right yeah the different i mean dynamics. a lot of a lot of things about what I do in my home aren't very easy <laughs> to do. I think like a lot of yeah. the parents I work with, like it's, you know, we're caregiving also. And I, and I, yeah. that's why I really truly come back to this is a nervous system disability. It disables yeah. my son from accessing his needs yeah. and wants. And so there is going to be some, there are going to be some differences with my younger son and it yeah. will be hard and he does get upset. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the next one I resonate with, and I've this is something that I've already started implementing in my home as well, is the just let go of the please and the thank you. So this is yeah. probably hard, all, again, for a lot of parents. And I just have to call out that so many of the reasons why this is hard is because it's the way that we were brought up and the way that we were just expected to behave. And no one back then really cared about whatever nervous system things many of us we're going through and so this is so new but the concept of not having to force a please and thank you i would also add to that forcing apologies to that same thing right there's 
repair, which is a whole other thing, but forcing the I'm sorry apology, I would also add to that. But if you could elaborate on on the letting go of please and thank you. Yeah, so this relates back to the root cause of autonomy, right? And so whenever we're telling them you have to say something like, or forcing them to or punishing them because they don't, what we're doing is activating their nervous system. And for me, it's always like an accumulation, right? Like every interaction is a choice point with my son. And it's like, is it worth it to activate his nervous system, which builds to the point where he can't eat? To have him say please to mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the waitress at the restaurant that like we've been to once in the last four years, you know? Right, right, right. Because <laughs> it's in accumulation. And so it's hard to sometimes see the causality because it's like just one please or thank you. But as those choice points build and accumulate, like what happened with my son going into nervous system and burnout, and what I see all the time in my educational and coaching practice. I mean, that's when families usually come to me and our and our business um, is that there is a cost that's higher than it appears in the moment, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's it's not a normative thing. It's like actually yeah. a like brain, like this is what's happening in his brain and this is what the outcome could be if I'm not accommodating because mm-hmm. I saw it, you know, mm-hmm. and I see it. And it's like it's one of those things where I'm like, is this is this that's the 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 hill you're gonna die on today to get them to say please and we're repeating it over and over again and then now they're stressed and you can't even enjoy the meal that you went out to because you forced this word yeah. this word right yeah yeah and I will say like to your question about the two different kids sometimes I'll prompt my little one to say you know can you say please or thank you because it's just like if it's just yeah. him and I. Uh-huh. I. Um, but but I don't make a big deal out of it. Like sometimes I'll do it, sometimes I won't. Yeah. I'm an imperfect parent, like the rest. And of you us. can still <laughs> you can still model it, right? Like yeah, even I even when model. my daughter doesn't, she'll ask for something, and then she'll ask for something, and then the waiter or someone will provide it, and I'll say thank you. And sometimes she will copy me. Sometimes she'll say it under her breath, or I'll say it louder for her. So like they're still modeling, and they will either repeat it or not or but you can thank the server on behalf of your child and you don't have to make it a thing um yeah yeah, i think that's that's great um okay so the fourth one is let go of structured activities in parentheses to the extent that you can and quote strew offerings for engagement so break that one down for us Sure. So the term strewing comes from the homeschooling community and was a term coined by a woman named Sandra Dodd, um, who I don't know much about. I just like to cite. I I love I was going to say I love I love the citations that's happening. So that's great. We're going to we're going to link as many of these. I'm going to have to go back and like marked and write down, make sure I link all of these because these are great resources. So thank you. So so i've adapted the concept a little bit to pda so so what is strewing it's the art of leaving things out that your child can gravitate towards or or not right so like instead of having a set amount of activities whether you're homeschooling and you're like okay science and then art and then reading and this is the schedule or if you're in an ot session and it's like okay here's your laminated pictures let's pick them and we'll do it in the order that you pick like both of those are what I mean by sort of structured, which as mm. we've mentioned, like some neurotypes need and it's very supportive, right? Yeah. I have more of a linear, like, let's make a freaking plan here. Yes. You know, same. <laughs> that is my love language. That is <laughs> checklists, my, plans, My husband and plan I make Excel spreadsheets <laughs> like on our date. So I get it, like I'm not <laughs> against it, but um, Strewing really provides that autonomy, it provides that equality where we can leave out visual cues, like, for example, in an OT session, it would be like, you know, you have the hammock swing and maybe you've brought in a football because that's a special interest. And then, you know, maybe you have some artwork on dogs or like cut it out, cut out pictures of dogs because that's other special interest. And then we see where the child gravitates and they might not want to do any of it and it's all good, but it's like a starting point. But you can also Mm. do auditory strews, which is like, I like to use declarative language, just like 
speaking to my husband and it's a sentence that my son can tune into and comment mm -hmm. on or not which is mm -hmm. a, a auditory cue to like a, a potential thing we could do uh -huh. or a use through which is like maybe you as a therapist or you as a mom you actually start engaging in an activity and they might join you or they might not yeah. right mm -hmm. it's just it's I like to think of it as an offering, like a sense yes. based. That's offering. what I that's what I that's what's making me think of. And this is uh, I, I don't know if you do this in your house, but I have a different voice when I'm saying something to my husband that I want her to like listen to. And he and he knows that I'm doing a thing right like she's if I say, let's go to the Aladdin Broadway musical. She'll say, I don't want to. And I'm like, I know she's going to love it. She's the same way with movies. I know she'll love this movie, but she won't try a new one. She'll watch the same one over and over again. So I have to pretend like it's my movie and she'll, you know, a kind of reverse psychology, but I'll have to say like, Hey babe, do you, would you want to go to the Aladdin Broadway musical with me? Like you wouldn't want to go would you? He goes, yeah, I think I'll go. And I'm like, okay, should I just get two tickets? And then she'll be like, I want to go. And it yeah. was like, if it were any other way, she'll say, nope, I don't want to go. But there's a certain voice that I use and he knows I'm like doing the thing. <laughs> so I'm like, play into it. I know we've already, I know we already bought three tickets, but you yeah. need to pretend <laughs> like we didn't. Here uh, is yeah. the, here's the PDA. I hate the word hack, but I'm going to say it. Okay. Um, this is where like, when I work with parents, we like deepen of like okay like behind the declarative language or the strew there has to actually be non-attachment okay so you can't of, even want something to happen no yeah <laughs> it's because like if because there's a perception of the energy behind like they can tell they oh, can yeah. intuit that yeah they're like i know this is a game i i'm not playing into it like if i want my son to do something and i strew it because i want him to join he will mm. perceive that and not do it so there's a degree of like truly letting go that comes with a lot of these accommodations and i view them as like a practice for non-attachment mm. um Okay, last one is allow them to opt out. So what do you mean by that opt out of what and how does this support a PDA child? Yeah, I mean, it's going to sound radical, what I'm going to say, but this gets back to the cost benefit. Like, I believe the transformative connection occurs when we allow them to opt out of almost anything that's not absolutely necessary for their well-being. Mm -hmm. So like whether that's school, going to the grocery store, participating in family events, and that's, you know, that's super triggering for parents to hear. I'm sure some of you yeah. listeners are triggered, but you're going to be, it's not going to be quite as triggering to those families who have a child or a teen in burnout, because you'll also know that there's a way forward. It's just the, it's like the permission. Yeah, like, and it won't be necessarily forever because it's really rooted in autonomy, right? But mm -hmm. but we can't start to collaboratively figure things out unless there's like a truly solid foundation of connection and trust. And often that has to be built on the truth that you will actually not force them to do things. And that, you know, like I've said to my son, like, I will never make you go to school if you don't want to do it yeah right um, yeah and that's really hard to say and say mm -hmm. it with honesty because mm -hmm. it's a big loss for a parent <laughs> and, Lots so, of control and there's fear and uncertainty and yeah so so does that how does that sound like so not not school but like he wanted to go to the birthday party and then today it's the day of the birthday party he decides he doesn't want to go that's fine is there any like do you want to call your friend and let him know that you're not coming or is it i'll just take care no. of it we'll just stay home like no same thing for soccer practice football practice anything mm -hmm. just he you let you ask him if he would like you to rsvp or sign him up for something and at that moment in time he says yes but then the time comes and they say no yeah and then you just leave it at that well that gets into like i also teach parents how to communicate and advocate like it's a holistic yeah. approach where it's like sure um first we do the decision making right yes like we don't like first it's 
And I think what I'm saying here is like, often we have to clear the brush of like, we need to really focus on understanding where our child's threshold is Mm -hmm. before we can start to get in that moment to moment negotiation with confidence. And, And often that requires lowering demands and allowing them to opt out to the point that they're below their threshold and we know they have more of a window because most of the time we're pushing them to do stuff way past their threshold, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, with karate, my son, the first time we did it, like I didn't understand PDA and I was going through the sensory processing lens without that autonomy and equality piece. And I would like be like, you signed up and you love it there. Like, why won't you go? Right? Like he wouldn't put his clothes on. He wouldn't. So I would like push him through it and he would melt down and it would be a terrible experience, but then he'd have fun. But then increasingly he was starting to fight me again and his activation Mm -hmm. was increasing. And I, I had the like burnout. I didn't know what, what that was at the time, this pre PDA awareness. And I knew intuitively, like, it's not worth it to force him. Yeah. The second time we had enough trust where I could use the declarative language, we could talk about it and we can make a plan together ahead of time of like, okay, what if you decide you don't want to go, you know, et cetera. And I look at activities as offerings, which means I have the mindset of like, I'm paying for the opportunity, even if he doesn't go, which Mm -hmm. is again, parents are not going to like that and feel triggered. (laughs) And then I speak to and advocate i speak to the coach i speak to the karate instructor my husband speaks to the football coach and we say like these are his needs he has a nervous system disability and he's autistic is this gonna work and i don't Mm -hmm. put him in scenarios where i feel like i can't make decisions that protect his overall physical and mental well-being right Mm -hmm. and so yeah if he can't go one day he doesn't go and then i'll communicate with the person who needs to know and what i believe is i'm teaching him to manage his disability because when he's an adult he'll have to be the one navigating these situations yeah like is it a good idea to do this Mm -hmm. activity if we're going to do it who do we need to communicate with what yeah. language are we going to use um do we have a plan for if your nervous system activation is too high how can we approach that without shame mm-hmm. yep and i always tell parents too that when we're teaching our kids about their needs and showing that we advocate for them and how it can make it work then they when they grow up they can surround themselves with people who are affirming of their needs and so they can find friends find partners uh find a workspace that can advocate for that that can be accommodating to their needs and they can build a lifestyle that works for them rather than you know the common pushback even i get i'm sure you you get it more than i do is well this isn't how the real world works how are they going to to do this and that's like such a big a big um looming cloud for so many parents who i think who who might have a kid who have pda who would they're you're they're hearing you say these things and say i would love to just go with the flow and let my kid do what he's asking you would i would love to just do that but i'm worried that mm-hmm. it's not gonna teach him how to be in the real world or i'm worried that so and so is going to think of me as this and i'm worried that he's going to be whatever but i i i think they'll find i'm hoping they find some comfort in hearing the way you speak about it and seeing it more as a way of leaving room in their nervous system to be able to have more uh uh more thinking brain opportunities for the quote real world and then they can know how to regulate themselves and to follow and and to find people who help co-regulate them in their adult life right yeah and you know i don't think we know what a whole generation of accommodated children looks like (laughs) you know what i mean that's true um i feel optimistic you know yeah i think that you know i don't want to get too philosophical but like for me it's like i'll never go back to allowing my son to end up in the situation he was in and if I can help others, parents not end up there, 
but in my spare time, I'm like, okay, how can I change this? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the world won't accept them. Okay, well, instead of worrying about 15 years from now, I'm going to work diligently to make it so that people understand how to accept them. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) We never have control. Right. It's like the only thing we have control over is our own behavior in the present moment. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I really try and focus on. And that's why I have a Buddhist practice because it's like always coming back to the present of like, what's right Mm. now? Like, do I feel tingling in my hands? Am I breathing? (laughs) Yes. That is my focus for helping my anxiety is just coming back to the present as well. So I think that's a really, that's a great place to end on for parents. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for all of the information. I certainly learned a lot and we didn't even get into some of my other questions, but for anyone listening, there's this other post that she has that I thought was very helpful. I'll also link it. She talks about the four four S's for how to help a child regulate. Do you wanna just call those out and then I'll link the post below for people to click on. What are those four S's for how to help a child regulate? Sure. So. I always want to caveat that this isn't a recommendation. It's an observation of patterns to help parents make decisions. So okay. patterns I've noticed are that there are really primarily four states that regulate a PDA child or teen, which is screens, another safe nervous system, sensory intense experiences with dopamine and novelty, and special interests. So especially if we're expecting a kid to get off the screen it's helpful to think about okay what safe nervous system special interest Mm. and novelty and dopamine and sensory are we replacing it with so it helps to like structure Mm. unschooling or weekends to think about those states yeah oh i really like that okay perfect so i'll put put the post to that the link to that post in the show notes as well as the so many other resources that you listed. I am excited to have all of those for parents. Thank you so much for your time today, Casey. You are Um, so welcome. Can you remind everyone where to find you and to binge all of your helpful content? Sure. So you can go to at peace parents at at peace parents on um, Instagram or TikTok or YouTube. And I think I'm just at peace parents on Facebook. And then I have the the PDA Parents podcast and the At Peace Parents podcast. Great. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Casey. We will be seeing you around. I can't wait to see more of your posts. Yeah, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating it and leaving a review, which helps other parents find me as well. Want to learn more from me? I share tons more over on Instagram at the OT Butterfly. See you next time.